Evangelists and pastors are supposed to be perfect, but we know that they're not. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, today as he shares how it has helped him as a father to discover that when God tells Abraham's story, he tells the truth. He tells the truth about his lies and his passive leadership over Sarah. What can we learn from Abram's example as a father of pure faith, but also of lying and passive leadership in the home? Before I was even born, my dad was a powerful evangelist. My dad was Billy Graham's really close friend. My dad, for example, had meetings in Carnegie Hall. I just saw in the news they had a group that was going to play in Carnegie Hall. When I looked at that auditorium, my dad had meetings just filling Carnegie Hall and presenting the gospel. Then Madison Square Garden. If you go to New York City today, there's the new Madison Square Garden. But in the old Madison Square Garden, my dad had regular meetings. In fact, several of his meetings, they had more people outside than they had inside. They put speakers up on the streets, and the policemen of New York came and controlled the crowd. My dad presented the gospel. On a cold, rainy day, more than 28,000 people came to Yankee Stadium. When I was a kid, every single Saturday I went to New York and my dad had a radio program, about 2,000 teenagers gathered, and then my dad had a radio program that went from coast to coast. It was on secular radio. There wasn't any Christian radio. So you go from dance music to my dad presenting the gospel. Incredible opportunities. That's the situation I was raised in. My dad founded a camp up in upstate New York, and, and now there's camps all over the world. My dad's legacy continues. In fact, your legacy continues because Don Luck Jr. worked in our church staff right here at NBC. He's now the director of Word of Life, the organization my dad started. So I was raised in a home with a powerful evangelist, and everybody knows that powerful evangelists and powerful preachers are perfect. Amen? <laughs> my dad was a powerful evangelist, but my dad was a passive leader at times in the home. My dad was gone. My dad would leave like he would take off on Monday, spend time with us, and then he would take off, and my dad would come back late Friday night, get ready for his broadcast. My dad was home very, very seldom. He'd go on long trips. Back in those days, you couldn't just jet back. So my dad would go, for example, to England and do a tour there, and he'd be gone for months and end. My dad took a trip to Russia. He was gone for months. My dad left my mom taking care of the home. So often my mom was the active leader, just like in a lot of your homes. My dad was a powerful evangelist. He could speak to thousands, but he could be passive as a dad in his home. The second thing about my dad, my dad had a tendency to lie when he was under pressure. For example, after my mom died and my dad started courting another woman, he met a girl in Bermuda, a lady actually, and she was from Topeka, Kansas. So my dad went on a trip to Kansas. But my sister, Betsy, that was living with him, my dad didn't tell her where he was going because he was afraid of her wrath. So my sister thought my dad had some serious illness. He, he scared my sister to death. My sister's calling me, where's dad, where's dad? I have no idea where it is. And my dad tells me, you're going to have to take care of it. You're the pastor in the family. You need to talk to your sisters about how after Sarah died, Abraham had the right to marry again. And so you need to go blocking from me. My dad was chicken when he was under pressure. He tended to lie. You know what? So do I. Every one of you fathers are passing on your weaknesses and your strengths to your kids. For example, 
Just before I came up to preach this morning, my wife Mary last night said, you need to wake me up at 7 o'clock because I need to go over and take care of the Birdwell kids while Karen takes Canned into the airport early this morning. I'm sitting there getting ready to teach her early this morning. She says, man, 7 o'clock. I'm supposed to do something at 7 o'clock. And Mary just had hip replacement surgery. I can't wake her up. I need to let her sleep for another hour. Completely went over my head that she was going to take care of the Birdwell kids. Because I'm thinking, like, how in the world could she do that? She's got her hip replaced. What in the world is she going to go trumping next door? Man, Mary, at quarter to eight, she is mad at the hatter. Why didn't you wake me up? Because I tend to be passive, especially when I first got married for probably the first eight or nine years of our marriage. My wife is a really strong administrator. She knows how to make things happen, just like some of your wives. So it's easy for me to be getting all ready to do the thing that I need to do. But I let the home, I let my boys, they were taken care of by mom. What about you, Dad? I have a tendency to be passive in leadership. Watch out. The second thing, I have a tendency to lie when I'm under pressure. So, for example, I got my pilot's license. And my wife is scared to death because I don't really drive that well in her view. (laughs) The honest truth of the matter is that she's driven thousands and thousands of miles with me, but she really, she doesn't believe that I could actually be safe several thousand feet up in the air. So when I was going down for my lessons, even when I went to get my test, I actually took my test, and my wife kind of didn't know where I was. Why not? Because I don't want to face the wrath of Mary. And when I don't want to face the wrath of Mary, what I do is I don't really lie directly. Like, I won't lie to you just straight up. I just don't tell you some really important information that you need to have. <laughs> now, some of you have seen this all the time. As dads, you all are laughing at his grandfather. But some of you do that same thing. And what I want you to realize, there's some of you that are sitting there that think, well, my life, is done as a spiritual leader. Some of you say, well, Dave, you should resign because of what you just told us. And that's where you haven't read the redemptive story of the Bible. And I want you to understand, as you turn to Genesis chapter 12, we're going to study today about a daddy. He is the father of all of you. How many of you have ever sung, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons and Father Abraham? So Abraham is the ultimate daddy of faith in the Bible. But if you read the story carefully, and what I want all of you dads and grandfathers especially to do, begin with Genesis chapter 12. That's where the story of Abraham begins. You need to read through to to Genesis chapter 25. How many of you have read your Bible since last Sunday? If you haven't, you're just kidding yourself. I can't do it for you on Sunday morning. All I can do is whet your appetite. In our church family, what we want you to learn to do is some of you have been raised in liturgical backgrounds where you skip all over the place. You know scripture, kind of. You know little bitty bunches of it. But you've never sat down and like, for example, if I ask you, summarize the life of Abraham. Tell me the story of Abraham. Where does the story of Abraham come in the book of Genesis? And what was the plot line of his life? What was the climax of his life? What was the resolution of his life? When did he die? In scripture, hardly any of you in this room could pass a test on that. That's crazy. When I learned to fly, I couldn't tell my flight instructor, I'm sorry, I don't know how to take off. 
I've been studying it for 26 years. I still don't know what the rotation speed is. My flight instructor would say, just forget it. You don't want to learn to fly. And that's what I want you to learn in our church family, what we're committed to. This is the most exciting book in the world. And if you'll start reading it, you're going to find out that there's all kinds of stuff there that you never dreamt was there. Genesis chapter 12 starts to tell the story of Abraham. And I'm going to come back to this, but God's call to Abraham was when he was Ur the Chaldees, the Lord says, I want you to leave your family, I want you to leave your kindred, leave your father, leave all your friends in Ur the Chaldees, and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. That's the first thing, a land. Then I promise you, if you will obey me, that I'm going to generate the seed through you. Remember, the redemptive story of the Bible is who's going to produce the great seed that will be struck in the heel by the serpent, but will be crushing the serpent's head. Who is that seed? And God promised Abraham, you're going to be the line that produces that seed. And then he says, Abraham, through you, through that seed, all the nature of the world will be blessed. Through the children that you generate, the world will be blessed. But ultimately, through the great son that will come through your line, all the world will be blessed. So Abraham decided that he would leave Ur the Chaldee. Now, some of you men are sitting here saying, well, I can never be like Abraham. Because I'm not like you. I wasn't raised as an evangelist kid. In fact, when you just told that story, you just blew right by me. Because, man, I never had a dad. I, I, I'm not like you. Like, Dave, I know that you don't know a time when you didn't know that Jesus died for you. I was raised in a drunken, immoral, pagan family. Some of you are saying that. Abraham was from that family. I hear it all the time. I can't do this because I'm, from, I'm not raised with this stuff. As dads, I want you to realize Abraham is like you if you're from a pagan family. Abraham came from a city where they worshiped the moon god. How many of you were raised at homes where they worshiped the moon god? Some of you say, oh, yeah, we did. Mom was kind of loony. No, I'm just kidding a little bit. In fact, Sarah's name in Hebrew sounds like the language of Ur of the Chaldees in the Mesopotamia. It sounds like the moon goddess. So that's the background. The book of Judges says that when God called Abraham, he was an idolater. His father, Terah, was an idolater. When I started Melothian Bible Church, during the break time right here that we just had, like we had break in between service, we used to have one service and then a break, and then we had question and answer time. During the break, everyone went outside and smoked. And I saw very few of you doing that today. Our church started out with a lot of people that really didn't know that much. So that if you're sitting here as a man saying, I don't know, I can't believe, I, how could I ever be a leader in the Bible church? How could I be a leader in my home? I want you to forget it. Father Abraham started as an idolater. You need to listen to God talking this morning, and you need to decide that you're going to live for the land that I'm going to tell you about. You need to decide that you're going to build your family on the seed, and you need to believe that through that seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I want you to know that my own dad, the great evangelist, he wasn't raised in a Christian home. He jumped from one church to another, depending upon where the pretty girls were. My dad was a pagan. My mom was a debutante in New York. She didn't know the gospel till she was in her late teens. So I'm not from a family that can go back with all these preachers in the family. My dad started a whole new seed. So I want to encourage you. There's some of you dads that are saying, well, I can't do this. Yes, you can. The second thing I want you to know, you might be from an idolatrous family. You can still hear God's call today. Second of all, some of you as husbands and fathers and grandfathers sitting here saying, well, I lie a little bit. Anybody ever lie a little bit? 
Well, look what happened. Right after God made the promise, look at Genesis chapter 12. This is incredible. God made the promise to Abraham, but when you get to verse 10, it says, now there was a famine in the promised land. After Abraham came to the promised land, in obedience to the Lord, it says there was a famine, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know you're a beautiful woman. Husband, that's a great thing to tell your wife. Tell her that often. So, so far, it's so good. Now, the next part ain't so good. You're a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. That is not a good plan. This was Father Abraham's plan, when you get to Genesis 20, much later in his story, he does the same thing again with Abimelech, who's another pagan king. You see, Sarah was, this is 2,000 years before Jesus came, genetics wasn't so bad then, you can marry much closer in your family. It's not until the law of Moses, about 1440, that you have really strong laws against, just to put some things together for you. So Abraham, Sarah and Abraham, Terah was their father, but they had different mothers. So they are kind of brother and sister. And that's what some of you do. This morning you tell kind of half-truths. That's what I tend to do. And what I want you to know is the great father of faith in the Bible, it tells a story where he lied about his wife. I want all of you fathers to know, and I want you husbands to know, It's very important for you to recognize you need to cover your wife. You need to protect your wife. Abraham is doing exactly the opposite. She is a knockout. She's a perfect 10. And when she gets done in Egypt, in the ancient world, the kings of the ancient Greece just take what they want. And Abraham trying to save his own skin. That's what some of you dads and grandfathers, you're not leading in your home. You cave and you, you lie a little bit. And in this case, Abraham was doing one of the worst things that a husband can do. He's leaving his wife unprotected. Now, if you think this isn't a bad story, what would you feel like if you went to bed tonight and your wife isn't sleeping next to you because she's in another man's house and she might go to bed with him? That's not a good plan. And that's in the Bible. So I don't want any kids to grow up in our church and say, well, Anna, I never heard about what happens in, in a secular society. When I go to Big D in North Dallas, I can't believe the way people live. Hey, this was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and it tells the truth. What I want you to know is that your lying has serious consequences, but it won't stop God's redemptive plan. You see, what happened was the Lord shut down and brought a plague upon Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh realizes, man, something's really wrong here. And then he finds out who Sarah really is, and he hits the fan. He gives Abraham a ton of gifts. He says, you get out of here. And Abraham, the way the story goes, becomes like a precursor. In the Moses story, Moses is going to bring two million people out of the land of Egypt. Now their forefather comes out of the land of Egypt, and he's very wealthy. So God shut down the wombs of Egypt and kept Sarah from having an illicit relationship. He had to do that twice in Abraham's life. Why? Because the seed is really important. And your seed is really important. I want every one of our young men to know. You live in a culture that says your seed isn't important. In fact, almost all the young people tell me, if you love somebody 
then it's totally evil and unjust not to let them love who they want to love. You know what's wrong with that? You forgot about your seed. If you're homosexual, you don't plant your seed in someone and generate a line. This is really serious stuff, guys and girls. You live in a culture that believes that all sex is about is your mutual attraction. And you can do your thing and spill it anywhere you want. There's nothing new under the sun because that's the next story. Abraham tends to lie, but he also tends to be a passive leader. So when you turn to Genesis chapter 16, right after God cements his promise with Father Abraham and he takes Abraham outside and says, Abraham, you know what? You're going to have kids like the stars in the sky. You're going to have kids like the sin in the seashore. And in Genesis chapter 16, it says, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Where did Abraham get Hagar, you think? On the bad news trip to Egypt. Then it says, The Lord has kept me from having children. So it's all the Lord's fault, Sarah says. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed with what Sarah said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan, which is the land he's supposed to live in, he'd done it for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant named Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. He went into her, what the Hebrew literally says here, he went into her, and Hagar conceived. And it says when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. It tells the whole story. Some of you are from broken families. You're from mixed families where you've got all kinds of stepmothers and stepdads and on and on it goes. And some of you feel like, I could never fit into this Jesus thing. I got news for you. How many of you have had a mom that told your dad, hey, I got a really young, beautiful Egyptian. Go to sleep with her. This is in the Bible, you all. And you need to listen. What's wrong with this story? What's wrong with this story? I want you to know culturally, this is a great solution. Like, I know you're horrified of what Sarah suggested. But in the ancient Near East, if you were an old mistress that had a servant girl and you hadn't produced any kids, it was common procedure for the mistress to take her young servant girl and have her go to bed with the mistress's husband, and the baby that was born would be their legal child. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? Every one of you dads in this room, you need to talk to your kids. Your kids believe if it's culturally accepted, it's right. And I want all of my precious brothers and sisters of Christ, one of the things that I hear constantly from kids, if we think that, 51%, it's got to be right. If there's a man that loved another man, it's totally unjust to tell him he can't connect with them sexually. Because that's culturally right. And now there's more than 51% that think that's right. And you also live in a culture like it's easy for us to be uptight about the homosexual temptation. But we live in a culture where when you get to be 50 and your kids are all grown up, then it's time to start again because our culture says that what you need to live for is your self-fulfillment. So what you do is when you reach my age and your kids are all gone, then both the husband and wife move away and they get with someone else that doesn't get mad at them at quarter to eight in the morning. Or I haven't had hip replacement surgery where I have to take care of her and I have to help her. 
I want to get with somebody younger that doesn't have that kind of surgery. And it'll be a beautiful thing because Mary will find someone that she loves and Dave will find someone that makes him feel good. All the TV shows say that, don't they? What's wrong with that? It's totally culturally acceptable. But how do you think my 10 grandkids would feel? So Papa has his talk with them. I used to love Ami, but Ami loved someone else, and I love someone else, and we're going to live happily ever after. We're going to have multiplier families, and we're going to be really happy together. How do you think my 10 grandkids are going to feel about that? See, in my family, what does it mean for Joel? Like Joel and Courtney have to raise a child that probably will never talk, has to communicate in other ways. Where as she grows older, they have to take care of her and bathe her and do everything else, and Papa and Ami have to help to do that. That's what real love is about. And my son Joel has been an incredible example of what it means to be committed, and his precious wife Courtney to be committed. When you have special needs kids, it's hard to make your marriage work. But they care about their seed. I want you all to start to care about your seed. And I don't care if 75% of Americans decide that we're not going to care about their seed. We're not going to destroy our genealogy. And I want you to start to create a spiritual genealogy. Sarah's plan was from hell. And we're still struggling with the results of that. But the Lord's redemptive plan wasn't destroyed because Abraham lied or because he was passive. All Abraham needed to say is, Sarah, that is a bad idea. It's not the Lord's plan. We're going to ask the great I am about that. That's all Abraham needed to say. But he was a passive leader. But you know what? That's not the final story of Abraham's life. Because the bottom line of Abraham's life was he believed. He said, Dave, how do I know that he believed? Because when he was just an idolatrous person living in Ur, the Lord told him, Abraham, I want you to get up and I want you to go to the land that I'll show you. And you know what the next word is? Abraham got up and he left. Some of you have heard Jesus say, I want you to trust me. I want you to believe in me. I want you to trust that I can take you to a land that will never disappear. I want to make sure every single one of you have said, Jesus promised to give me a land that will never disappear. And the bottom line of my family is not just the land of Israel that the Lord promised Abraham, but what Abraham is said in the book of Hebrews. It said in the book of Hebrews 11 that Abraham looked for a land who has foundation. He looked for a city that had foundation whose builder and maker is God. I want every one of you to know, as fathers and grandfathers, Abraham lived to the land that the great God could give. And what the tradition you dads and you grandfathers need to be building in your home as you're generating kids from the time they're little bitty kids. They live not for just some floating on a cloud somewhere in some ethereal heaven, but they believe in a new heaven and new earth where the Lord's going to give them a concrete city, the new Jerusalem, where the streets will be paved with something even better than gold because it's totally clear. It's more beautiful than everything you can imagine. You know what? It'll never disappear. If you're sitting there going, Dave, that's a bunch of baloney. You can't just live for eternity. Then you talk to Matt and Rachel and Ethan after the service. Because little Ethan's a young man that knows you live for the land that even if I face death, I've still got a land. And I want you to know. That's why he said to his mom, hey, 100 years from now, mom, what's it going to mean? Guard where the wind tells you you can hold your life together 
It finishes with a woman that's torn herself away from everything. And she reaches down on Tara and she takes some dirt and she says, I'm going to live for Tara. Some of you dads are living for your house. You're living for the ground that you have. I built my own house with my hands. My wife helped me do that. But you know what? There's going to come a day. My kids couldn't care less about my house right now. And it'll probably be sold to someone else someday. And all that ground, I literally did. I planted all the trees there. That's a great thing to do in life. It just isn't strong enough to get you all the way through life. I want you dads and grandfathers especially to lead your families. We've got a land. We've got a city that will never disappear. Whose builder and maker is God. Second of all, Abraham believed in the seed. Isaac was born of Sarah. And the Lord brought baby laughter into their family. And Isaac is the line that produced the line of the Messiah. And what the ultimate crisis of Abraham's life was, the Lord says, okay, now I gave you the seed. I gave you Isaac. He's now growing your home. Now I want you to take you out and kill him. I want you to take your one and only son. It's the worst command that's ever been given in the Bible. And at the crisis of Abraham's life, Abraham does this. He says, God told me that through Isaac, all my seed would be blessed. Now he's telling me to walk to what later became Jerusalem, to walk on a mountain which later became the Temple Mount where they offer sacrifices. And God tells me to pile a bunch of wood and to raise a knife above my son and take his life. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham was willing to do that. But he said... God promised me that my son Isaac would become the father of a multitude through him. So if I take his life under Yahweh's direction, then God will raise him from the dead. Now, God didn't let Abraham take a son, and he's not going to want any one of you to take anybody's life like that. You say, Dave, well, why was that in this story? Why did God tell this story? Because God is telling an incredible redemptive story and he wanted you to really wrestle with how in the world did God ask a daddy to take a son to a mountain and almost kill him? Why would God ever do that? In the Old Testament, it's never answered. It's not answered until you get to the climax of the Bible where another daddy takes his son, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Judah, the seed of David, Jesus the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and this time God was the daddy that took his son to a mountain. And this time God didn't block the evil one from being able to take the life of his only son. And the serpent struck harder than you could ever imagine. Jesus faced the worst suffering, the worst alienation. He took all of the curse for us. And then... God said, the ultimate daddy in the universe says, I got you. The penalty for all of the deception, Dave lies when he's under pressure, but it can be covered by the blood of Jesus. So he doesn't have to stop pastoring. Dave can be passive in leadership in his home, but he can still get up today and lead you and be strong with you because he's been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And he believed in this incredible story of amazing grace to you because Jesus has risen from the dead to help us not to lie anymore to help us not to be passive leaders, to help us be teenagers and children and young adults and a whole church family that live our life for the land that will never be taken away from us. 
Because we believe in the seed who gave his life. And Jesus said, if I be planted into the ground, accept the seed, die, and be planted into the ground, it can't bring much fruit. But Jesus was planted in the ground. And when he rose again from the dead, now his blessing is exploding to the nation. That's what I want you to build your life on. You say, Dave, where does that begin? It begins with every one of you dads making sure that your family knows that you believe in the land that's seeding the blessing. I asked you a few weeks ago, as dads and grandfathers, to make sure that every one of your family know how you came to know Jesus as your Savior. Okay? Remember that? I want to ask you, dads and grandfathers, dads first, if I were to ask your kids, I go over to your house, and we're having a great time together, we're eating meals together, and I take your 10-year-old, and I say to your 10-year-old, hey, how did daddy come to know Jesus? Can they tell me? Grandfathers, I want you to understand, I'm, I'm not putting a guilt trip on you, I just know this is the way it works. When I ask my students to do something, they don't do it. So I do it again. And again and again. The Holy Spirit wants to put tremendous blessing. For some of the teenagers, some of you have moms and dads that maybe don't know Jesus. Then what you can do is you write out your testimony and say, hey, dad, mom, this is what I really did. This is what I really believe. Okay? That'll be hard to do that. Like all of my grandkids are away, so I wrote out a letter. I put it on Dave Wharton's stationery that looks like the University of Texas and everything. I lost the letter three times. Like I never lose stuff on the internet. I lost it three times on my computer. I tried to print it, and it didn't print out. So I want all of you to know that the evil one does not want you to do this, but my grandkids are all getting a letter from Papa that they can hold on to that tells exactly how Papa came to know Jesus and how his daddy was used to do that. You can do this. You say, well, Abe, I can't write anything down. Just get your wife with a video camera. Get your, you can include your kids. Have them take their iPhone and have them video. You just do it visually. You could send it on YouTube. It can go all over the world. Dan has, had made a video Dan and Jeannie together did a video, one of our elders, and all of their family had the video where Dan and Jeannie expressed their story about how they came to know Jesus. And I want that to really happen the next several weeks, okay? The second thing I want you to really think of is some of you have lied. Anyone lied? Any of you husbands passive in your leadership? Are you letting it stop you from taking the lead in your family? This morning, the Lord is saying, like, all I need to do this morning is I confess it to you. You can trust me. I don't need to resign. You can trust me. But the way that the Lord is working my life is when I'm tempted to lie, I just told you this morning. And that's what it means to confess our faults one to another. So I want you to have to think hard this morning. If you've been sitting here with that thing, well, man, Dave, I lie. And Dave, I tend to be passive as a leader. Some of your, some of your wives are just begging you to lead. This morning, the time to say, Lord, Abraham was like me, but he became the father of faith. I can too.